This is Ron Stockton. General Colin Powell died today, October 18th, 2021. I have some thoughts on General Powell that I want to share. The first year that Jimmy Carter was president, he was presented by the Joint Chiefs with a list of people to be promoted to general. Carter was a micromanager who actually read reports. He noted to the chair that there were no African Americans on the list. He was told that these were all very talented people who had fulfilled the requirements for promotion. Carter told him to go back and look over the potential appointees to see if there are any African Americans. The chair came back and said that there was a very talented person named Colin Powell, but they were required to be in rank a certain number of years as colonel before promotion to general. Powell would be on his desk in two years. Carter decided to jump the two years, which he was allowed to do, and to promote Powell in 1977. In case you are wondering about precedents, uh, Roosevelt did the same thing with Eisenhower during World War II, moving him from colonel to general and soon putting him in charge of all Allied forces in Europe. Powell had served in Vietnam. He was once asked if there were any racists in the ranks who resisted orders from a black officer. He said there were, but that there were procedures for dealing with such people. He did not sound as if he would have been intimidated or even upset, and I would not have wanted to be that private who disputed him. Powell was of Jamaican heritage. Both parents were immigrants. He grew up in the Bronx. It is noteworthy how many successful African Americans are of Jamaican heritage. There must be something in the water. Powell was chair of the Joint Chiefs when the Gulf War occurred. He and General Schwarzkopf, commander of the U.S. forces in the Middle East, resisted the war. They felt that the U.S. military had a good containment strategy. They had Saddam Hussein hemmed in, and sooner or later, someone would pop the guy. When commentators noted that the U.S. Army was sitting in a hot desert in Saudi Arabia waiting to liberate Kuwait, Schwarzkopf said, We are willing to sit in a hot desert for a very long time to avoid a war. In his memoir, Bush the father told how General Powell had made a strong case for not having a war. Bush told him he had decided to invade. He said Powell saluted and carried out his orders. After Vietnam, our top military commanders were not war hawks, such as the type of people John Kennedy had to deal with. After the war, Powell and Schwarzkopf were both rock stars. Both were being talked about as potential presidential candidates. A friend once asked General Schwarzkopf if he would throw his hat into the ring. Schwarzkopf, who was known as gruff and outspoken, said, I offend a lot of people. I don't have a personality for politics. He was also openly critical of Israel and its role in U.S. decision-making. Bush forced him to have an Israeli officer in his war room. That really upset Schwarzkopf. The Israelis insisted that Saddam had vast caches of weapons of mass destruction buried in the desert. Schwarzkopf was ordered to bomb those sites. As he said in his memoir, we were putting American lives at risk and diverting a third of our bombing missions to blow up sand dunes in the desert. Pell seriously considered a run for president in 2000. He was one of the most popular and high-profile personalities in the country. He was and remained throughout his life a Republican. He would have had a good chance of winning the nomination, in my opinion, and even the election. He flirted with the idea, but his wife Alma was terrified with fear. 
that there were elements in this country that would never accept an African-American president and that he would be assassinated. For her sake, he backed off. Later, as the Republican Party veered off center, he endorsed Barack Obama for president and then Joe Biden, but he remained a Republican. Powell pronounced his name Colin rather than Colin. He did this in honor of Colin Kelly, a hero from World War II. Kelly was a pilot in the Pacific. As boys in the 1950s, we believed that he had crashed his plane into a command tower of a Japanese destroyer and disabled it. This was an urban legend, but the reality was close. On patrol, he dropped a bomb onto a destroyer and disabled it. That part was true. Later, his plane was hit. He had his crew bail out, but he and two other crewmen stayed in the plane to take it home. Alas, it crashed, but Kelly became a legend a legendary war hero to us guys. As chair of the Joint Chiefs and as national security advisor to Bush the Sun, and then as Secretary of State, Powell is famous for certain comments. First is what he called the Pottery Barn Rule, that if you break it, you've bought it. The Pottery Barn objected strongly that they do not charge customers for accidents, but the point was a good one. If you go into Iraq and mess up the political system, you're going to be stuck with whatever is left over. His other claim to fame was known as the Powell Rule. When Madeleine Albright, then Secretary of State to Bill Clinton, suggested that we send ground troops into Yugoslavia, Chairman Powell objected. Albright snapped back, Why do we have an army if we're not willing to use it? This did not produce a good response from Powell. This was one of the legendary confrontations in which Powell was thinking of dead Americans in a Vietnam-type quagmire in which you get in and can't figure out how to get out. Albright was thinking of something very different. Powell soon came up with the Powell Doctrine. Before we send out our military into combat, we have to ask three questions. What is the mission? How do we define victory? And how do we get out? Those were the points he made in his confrontation with Albright. He did not get an answer that satisfied his concern. But to his credit, Clinton decided on a bombing campaign without ground troops. That had its own repercussions, but at least they did not involve ground troops in Yugoslavia. I should mention two of these consequences. The first is that starting in March 1999, we commenced heavy bombing against the Serbian army in, ten week, in a 10-week war. Technically, it was a NATO war, but we did the heavy lifting. From a military point of view, that was a very successful war. But politically, we learned the wrong lesson. We were the first country in the history of the world to win a war without a single fatality. Not one American died in that war probably 1,200 Serbian military and police died, just for comparison. We had enjoyed a similar victory in the Gulf War, which as someone observed was not really a war, but a bombardment campaign with a cleaning up operation at the end. As one cynic said, I was in a rifle unit in Korea. Our unit alone suffered more casualties than the whole U.S. Army in Iraq, and we did not get a victory parade. I think there's a lesson here. When people come to think that war is cheap, they may think that going to war is a low-cost decision.
The second consequence was that we, the American public, were subjected to a massive propaganda campaign to generate support for our action in Yugoslavia. We were told that 85% of the residents of Kosovo, the Albanian province, had fled out of fear of rapes and massacres. To be honest, the Serbian forces had engaged in serious war crimes, but those numbers were simply made up by someone who wanted to turn the American army into an army of virtue protecting God's children. As I would often tell my students, anyone who can make you feel fear or anger can control you. I guess that's another lesson. And I think there is yet another lesson here. If someone wants to go to war, don't believe a word they tell you about circumstances that justify their action. Before I talk about the Iraq War, Colin Powell's low point, I want to talk about that victory parade in 1991. I happened to be in Washington at the time. Some friends and I went downtown to see the event. They had arranged that the fireworks would explode in such a way that the sounds would bounce off the buildings and give the illusion that we were in the middle of a bombardment. To be honest, that was not the effect I wanted and I quickly returned to my hotel room. But before we left, a female in our group went over to an Arab woman selling flowers. She greeted the woman and said a few words to her. The woman collapsed into tears. She said she was an Iraqi and this was very painful for her. My friend confronted her, sorry, comforted her. I guess there is more than one story on a victory parade. This brings us to the Iraq War of 2003. We had gone into Afghanistan after September 11th with almost universal popular support. I had been with Powell and Schwarzkopf on the Gulf War that we had Saddam penned in and we just had to wait him out. I knew that we could not allow the occupation of Kuwait to stand, but there were credible alternatives to an invasion, alternatives supported by the top two military commanders in the country. But on Afghanistan and Iraq, I was in a different place. I got interviewed a lot, so I have to think carefully about what I'm going to say and why. On Afghanistan, I was actually ahead of my own government. That very evening of September 11th, I said to my wife that we cannot allow a regime to survive that would permit such an attack to be planned and conducted from their territory. I was afraid of overreach and bad strategy, but it's easy for people such as me to be critical when we're not in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would have said. But on the Iraq war, I was very outspoken against that adventure. Several years into that war, I was in Britain visiting with some people whose friendship went back to the 1960s when we all lived in the same school compound in Kenya. My friend suddenly turned the conversation to Iraq and said how that was a moral war. He had obviously been drinking Tony Blair Kool-Aid from the responsibility to protect tradition, which sounded to me a bit like Rudyard Kipling's poem, White Man's Burden. I didn't want to challenge my friend, but I did not feel I could be silent. I said, I think Michael and I are probably on opposite sides on this issue. That was a war that was bound to turn out bad. He tried to salvage his position and said it had been badly implemented, which it obviously had. But had it been done right, it would have worked. I had read a lot about the Iraqi political system and the serious divisions in that country. I said that even the best policies in the world could not have made that war work. 
It got rid of Saddam, which was good. But after that, the Pottery Barn rule kicked in. I didn't actually say Pottery Barn rule, but that was the gist of my argument. So what does this have to do with Powell? In the lead up to the war, there was strong resistance. In a democracy, a war requires something resembling popular support, and that was missing. To see the problem, let's look at some public opinion data from 1991 and 2003. In both cases, two wars were underway when the public was asked the same question. Do you think the United States did the right thing in starting military action, or should we have waited? In 1991, there was broad bipartisan support for military action. The Bushbaker team had rounded up a coalition of scores of countries to support the liberation of Kuwait. They had also made a good case to the American public. The Democratic Party did not oppose the war, even though individual members of Congress did. Even Tip O'Neill, the legendary Speaker of the House, yielded his gavel and spoke as an individual member of Congress when he addressed the House with his opposition. In case you don't know, O'Neill was from Boston, a center of anti-war sentiment. I suspect he felt he had to state his concerns for the sake of his constituency. In terms of public opinion, let me give you the numbers. In 1991, Republicans were 88% to 8 in favor of the war. Well, that's not surprising. Independents were 78 to 16% in favor of the war. And Democrats were 73% in favor and 24% opposed. That's very impressive. With those numbers, the president could enter Iraq with broad bipartisan public support. But let's look at the numbers from 2003. Here we see a very different pattern. The Republicans were 86 to 13 in favor of the war, about the same as 1991. Independents were 58% to 38%. They still supported the war, but now the ratio had shifted dramatically, 38% opposed. And among Democrats, support was 42 to 55. That is, only 42% supported the war and 55% opposed. Of course, when your country is at war, many people will support the troops. But now a majority of Democrats were opposed. This had become a partisan war. There had been little effort to win over the broader public. Well, let me take that back. We had been told that Saddam was developing weapons of mass destruction. What did that mean, WMD? Well, we were not sure. Technically, it means chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Chemical weapons? We were pretty sure Saddam had poison gas since he had used it at Halabja and against the Iranians. Biological? Well, that was less clear. Did he have anthrax and smallpox ready to unleash on American troops? And if he did, would he be stupid enough to do so? We weren't sure. But we were told that he had a nuclear weapons program underway, and it actually acquired high-grade uranium from Niger in Africa. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice said, we do not want the first proof of WMD to be a nuclear cloud over New York City. Wow, that was scary. But still, to careful people like me, it did seem like scare tactics. We had been told that Saddam was involved in September 11th, 
and 53% of the public believed that was true. And we were told that he wanted nuclear weapons, which might have been true, but what does that mean? I would love to win the lottery, but I've never bought a ticket. So what can you make of my desire to be super rich? Not much. And what if I had bought a ticket? What do you learn from that? Well, not very much. The Bush administration knew they had a problem, so they deployed their super weapon, General Powell. He was a person of such exceptional integrity who had not engaged in inflammatory war rhetoric. We trusted him. I trusted him. When he went to the UN and outlined the evidence with charts and numbers and what seemed like hard evidence, which he told us was hard evidence, for the first time I said, I still think an invasion would be a mistake, but maybe there is something to this. The speech turned out to be a turning point in Powell's career. CIA Director George Tennant tried to weasel out of his responsibility in his memoir. And Powell's deputy, General Larry Wilkinson, soon resigned on principle. Powell later said that his speech been a, had been a blot on his career. I definitely agree, and so does almost everyone else. Colin, you did a good job. You served with honor. You spoke truth when truth was needed. But you made one really big mistake when you did not speak the truth. You acknowledge that mistake, which is to your credit, we will not quite forgive you, but we can honor you in spite of it. R.A.P. General Powell. Would you be interested in some films? Fair Game is the true story of what happens to serious, knowledgeable public servants when they try to find the facts regarding allegations that Saddam Hussein had acquired uranium from Niger. Turtles Can Fly is an Iraqi Kurdish film about the massacre of Kurds in Halabja. It is very powerful and very distressing. Charlie Wilson's war is not about Iraq. It is about Afghanistan. But it shows how individuals can move public policy towards military action. And how can a Tom Hanks film go wrong? Thanks for listening.